Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Monica, it's a pleasure to have you back. It's been, well, I think it's had to be like a year already. Yeah, it has been a year, but it's really nice to be back. Yeah, it's kind of wild to think that my book's been out for a year, but. Does it feel good? Are you still, are, are you still getting all the number of uh, requests or interviews from people about your book? I mean, you focus on JFK as like his policies and stuff like that, which I think is really important. I know all the conspiracy and assassination stuff gets sold probably pretty good. Yeah, no, I still get some attention for it. Yeah, I'm kind of in this weird um, middle area where I don't talk about the assassination, but I don't write this like trashy book about Kennedy's, you know, alleged sex life or whatever either. So I'm kind of in this middle area where I'm just writing about his policies, which is kind of taboo because a lot of academia doesn't really want to talk about his policies in detail, right? Because that introduces motive for murder, right? And so, and then the assassination people or books focus on the assassination, but there's no one really focusing, I would say, on his policies, broadly on his policies. You know, people will write about civil rights or certain things here and that, but there's not that many policy books out there about JFK, really. Um, there are some, but, you know, academia doesn't focus on JFK that much. Um, it's kind of glossed over, I think, in history classes. I don't know. I haven't been in school for a while, but you know, the impression I get is his presidency is kind of glossed over. You know, he was he was there for a couple of years. He didn't do much while he was in the White House. You know, they kind of give this image of like, well, he wasn't really legitimate. He stole the election. Oh, he was sick. He was going to die anyway. So it's all kind of gives the impression that not much was happening when he was president, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I do feel like my book is kind of in this weird area where it's not really writing about things or talking about things that other people are too much, if that makes sense. I'm curious on the academic side of things. I mean, do they not see the Bay of Pigs invasion? I mean, I understand it's known as a failure, but Kennedy took the rap for that. And that wasn't even really his responsibility to, but he considered himself the executive of these agencies and he was going to take full responsibility, which is probably the most honorable thing a person can do. You know, that's like someone makes a mess and you take the blame for it. I would consider that probably one of the great aspects of being a, a president or just a human being. Oh, yeah, no, I was really impressed by that. Yeah, no, he does get trashed for the Bay of Pigs. But I think to your point, he took responsibility. I mean, if you think about all the things happening in the world over the last 60 years happening today, who takes responsibility for anything? They don't. They try to point the finger at the other guy. They try to lay blame elsewhere. Um, and, you know, even though Kennedy was sort of conned into that, I would say, or, you know, he wasn't given all the information to make the best decision. He didn't have many good options, you know, because he had to do something with those exiles. It's not like doing absolutely nothing was an option either, you know, because then they would come back to the U.S. disgruntled and, you know, upset over the fact that they didn't get their promised return home. Um, so the fact that he took full responsibility for that, and in a way it was his responsibility because he was the president of the United States, you know, he had to make a decision and it was ultimately his decision to say, yeah, go ahead. Um, but the fact that he admitted to that, I think, you know, does show a lot of courage on his part. And it makes, um, it develops trust in people because his approval rating actually shot up after that. I think his approval rating like shot up to like 90% after he took the responsibility for that because I think people were so not used to that, so not used to seeing a guy up there saying, you know what, I, I effed up, I messed up, it's my fault. Um, yeah, I just think that was a shock to people and they liked it and that's why his approval rating shot up. And he actually made this comment, something like, the worse I do, the more people like me. Um, <laughs> When did um, kind of funny was the so the Cold War platform that he kind of ran on then experienced change and kind of changed his direction a little bit. I mean, did you see the approval rating increase from this change? Like it was a new thing for a lot of people that maybe it was a better way of coming to more peaceful resolution rather than what the country had been going with for the longest time. Um, it's hard to say. I think his approval rating shot up because he took responsibility. I think it had more to do with that than anything to do with the Cold War. Because when he was really pushing to end the Cold War in like middle of 63, um, you know, when he gave his American University peace speech, which basically humanized the, the Soviets and talked about all the struggles they had over the years and how we need to make peace with them. You know, they're just like us. They breathe the same air, et cetera. I think um, 
it's hard to say because he was also pushing civil rights in the middle of 63. So his approval rating went down um, in the middle of 63, although it started to go back up towards his near his death. So he was back up to close to 60% um, when he died. So the average over his whole presidency, the um, two years and 10 months was around 70%. And then of course, just like everyone else, it went up or down. But it went down into like the low, I think the lowest was maybe like 53, 54%. And that was around the civil rights speech and the American University peace speech, which again, they happened at the same time. So you don't really know what the cause was, you know, which one contributed more than the other, but it was back closer to like 60% when he died. So I think the American public was starting to go with him. And of course, he got a lot of support for his nuclear test ban treaty. Um, you know, that was ratified by the Senate and it was by like, I think 85 to 15% or I can't remember the exact breakdown, but, you know, it got a lot of approval and it happened because he went around the country talking about it and encouraging, um, you know, how important this nuclear test ban treaty it was and whatnot. So I think people by the end of his presidency were coming on the same page as he was, or they were starting to get to that page, but it is hard to like you said, when it's so rampant and everything's like Cold War and everything's like communism bad and you know what I mean? And communism is evil and all these things. And and when that's the culture you live in, it's hard to for anyone to say, wait a minute, let's take a step back. You know, let's not, you know, see these people as evil, you know, et cetera. That's that's you know, it takes time for people to absorb that and make that change. What was the hardest thing for you to understand about Kennedy's policies? Like I, there's fringe areas I noticed, and we mentioned about the academics, but there's a contested part where I usually get a little bit of a rebuttal on, which is the Vietnam War aspect of things, because he didn't live to really see the whole troops being pulled out and everything like that. And people go, yeah, but you can't use that as like a good policy of Kennedy's because we never saw what was going to happen with that. And I mean, could you maybe clear up some of that myth a little bit of like Kennedy wasn't actually pulling out troops? I don't know if you've ever came across that before, but I've come across it from a few other individuals who do biographies on like Johnson. And yeah, they probably have a bias towards the guy, but I, I'm just that area is still clouded a little bit because it was we didn't like even with the assassination plots on Castro. I think we have Robert McNamara's papers that said that Kennedy did not know anything about it. Now, the history books teach it like Kennedy signed off on that was 100 percent go for it. So there's a lot of areas that are clouded for at least my generation yeah so to me almost the debate we're having the wrong debate about vietnam and kennedy the debate is not whether he was pulling out or not the debate is whether he would have had a massive war and sent massive combat troops into vietnam and i think there's no debate on that whatsoever he was never going to do that. And you can see that from his statements in the 1950s. You can see that from the fact that in 1961 they pushed him hard to send as many as 250,000 combat troops. He instead sent advisors, and that was his limit. That's as far as he was going to go, even though he was massively pressured to send combat troops. And in Jackie Kennedy and her oral history, which was taken in early 1964, so this is before there was any escalation in Vietnam or anything like that. So there was no reason for her you know, to cover for her husband or anything of that nature. You know, she said in early 1964 that Jack always told her that the political was so much more important than the military in Vietnam. And I think she probably knew her husband better than anyone else did. Um, so there's just no way in hell he would have ever sent 500,000 combat troops into Vietnam. Now, whether he would have left some advisors, whether he, you know, people say he would have pulled them all out. I think he would have. I think he, that was where, where he was heading to pull all the advisors out. But it's the wrong debate. Like, even if he had left 10,000 advisors there, it would have been like it was in the early 60s. You know, it would not have become this massive war that it became under Johnson. So I think people are having the wrong debate when they're saying, was he pulling the advisors out? Was he not? To me, that's almost irrelevant. The debate is, was he going to put half a million troops in there? No, he was not. And that's not even debatable, in my opinion. So I think that's it's almost like that conversation is a distraction in a way. Um, although I do agree with the people that he was most likely going to pull people out, but it's just, you can never know because, um, you know, you, you don't know because things happen. You don't know what decisions he would have made. It looks like he was going in the direction of pulling the advisors out. Maybe he would have left some of them in there, but it's irrelevant really, because there was not going to be a massive Vietnam war. 
even if, you know, there was some minimal military support, if that makes sense. Well, you brought up a really good point that the history books really do not focus on Kennedy a whole lot. And I don't, I, in my opinion, I think it's because a lot of the stuff that Kennedy had in the works eventually got attributed to Johnson. Now, Johnson did increase troop involvement in Vietnam, but then towards the ending, he's starting to pull people out. And the next thing you know, civil rights gets attributed to him as well. And I'm like, oh, weren't some of these Kennedy's policies that were in effect or things that he was talking about doing and Johnson kind of just piggybacked on that. So maybe we'd have more of an accurate or more longer history of Kennedy in our history books, at least just to be able to be taught if a lot of things weren't attributed to Johnson. Yeah. So, you know, Jackie said that in her older history as well, that Johnson was going to try to take credit for everything JFK did, um, which is kind of what's happened, right? Like the civil rights bill, the Medicare bill, that was all stuff that um, Kennedy started that was well on its way to passing when Kennedy passed away. And the history books do give Johnson credit for that. Um, but they, the thing about a good president is not just the major legislation you sign. And Kennedy did sign tons of legislation. You know, he increased minimum wage. He expanded Social Security. He increased the minimum payments on Social Security. You know, he did the Area Redevelopment Act, the Manpower and Training Act, you know, the Public Works Act, the um, uh, Educational Facilities Act. He did all these things that aren't really talked about at all. So he did get tons of legislation through. That's the first kind of myth that he that no legislation got through. It's just the two major things that he was working on. I guess civil rights and Medicare passed after he died. So they're given to Johnson, but those are really Kennedy's bills. Um, and he does deserve credit for them because Johnson did not want to introduce the civil rights bill. He told JFK it was bad mistake politically that it might cost him the election. So he was not in support of introducing that bill. And actually after JFK died, he just left it in Bobby's hands. So he's told Bobby, you deal with it. That way, this is what Bobby said in his oral history. So Bobby said, Lyndon left it with me. That way, if it succeeds, he, he can take credit. And if it fails, he can blame it on me. That, that's Bobby Kennedy's words. Um, and so Bobby did stay on as attorney general until that civil rights bill passed, at which point he resigned after that. And you know, as you know, he ran for senator of New York. Um, and I think the other thing that makes a really good president is standing up um, against special interests, which Johnson did not do, but Kennedy did. You know, so he stood up to the steel industry. He stood up to the chemical industry. He stood up to the pharmaceutical industry. And these are things that you don't necessarily have pieces of legislation for, but that make a great impact on society and on, you know, people's lives that don't get talked about, that should get talked about. So you lost a lot with Kennedy that I think people are not aware of, which is why I called my book what, what the World Lost When It Lost John F. Kennedy, because I wanted to express that a lot was lost when he died and a lot did change when he died, um, which I think is completely obscured um, in academia and in the history books. Can I ask about uh, JFK? Some of the topics we were going to talk about, but JFK and Wall Street, I really haven't gotten any information. I mean, I know what you mentioned about like the pharmaceutical industry. I've seen that in some of his, uh, not, I don't know if his debates, I think just some of his speeches that he made, he was talking about uh, things in the works on some of those fronts, but with wall street, what's the connection with wall street? So big business and I guess economic power. Yeah. And economic power. were not fond of JFK. So Jackie also said in her or oral history that all kind of the the big bankers and the big businessmen didn't like JFK. And which is kind of funny because the economy was booming, like he created a booming economy. So you would think that they would like him, but the way in which he created the booming economy was kind of spread out and dispersed and was um, everybody was benefiting from that economy, not just those at the top. And I know in 1964, when Jackie did her oral history, she's like, look at this booming economy. This was all, you know, this is what Jack created. And, you know, look at how much crap he got from all these, you know, businessmen and bankers and whatever um, for this incredible economy that he helped spur, um, which is kind of weird. But I think a lot of these people want power, like they want concentrated power. And so when you have tons of small business, so Kennedy said he didn't want economic power in the hands of the government, but he didn't want it in the hands of a few private individuals either. He basically wanted economic power dispersed. And so he supported small businesses. He supported small banks. Um, so he was um, 
working with a guy called James Saxon, who was his comptroller of the currency, who basically wanted to um, increase the amount of small banks in America, wanted to create greater competition between banks, wanted these small banks to have greater freedom from the Federal Reserve System, you know, greater ability to set their own interest rates and things like that. Like he thought the Federal Reserve should just um, be in control of money supply and nothing else. They should have no control over how money is spent, which I think is which I think is which I think is important today when you talk about central bank digital currencies and stuff. I don't know how much you've looked into that, but that's potentially introducing complete control over how money is spent, right? Whereas if you don't behave a certain way, you don't eat because if you don't transact, you can't eat, right? And you saw that kind of with the truckers in Canada. I don't know if you followed that. They, you know, tried to shut down their bank accounts, and that was the way to stop that protest. So if you can just shut down the bank accounts of people who are protesting, that is much, much easier to do when you only have a few big banks, you know, because if there's five big, big banks that you can go to, well, yeah, it's not that hard to convince five banks to shut down people's accounts if they do something the government doesn't like. But when you have like thousands and thousands of small banks or however many, you can't really shut down people's ability to transact. And so you can't control society through the financial system that way. And so I think Kennedy was very much for dispersed power. He didn't like centralized power. He wanted decentralized power. And so, you know, obviously communism is one form of centralized power, but having um, everything run by a few corporations is another form of centralized power. And Kennedy understood that. He didn't want an America that was run, you know, like he said, he didn't want economic power in the hands of a few individuals. And that was, I think, the main kind of like um, tension between him and Wall Street. It's not that he wasn't good for the economy, it's that he wasn't good for the oligarchs, is what I would say, because the economy was actually great under JFK, like GNP went up 20%, unemployment went down, you know, quite a bit, close to 50% by the mid 1960s, which was still, you know, benefiting from Kennedy's policies. Inflation was much lower than usual. There was this almost no inflation, it was like 1% a year. Um, you know, so that when he increased minimum wage, when he increased Social Security, that wasn't taken away by inflation. You know, people actually got real. There was actually a real benefit in people's lives, you know, a real benefit in their wages. It wasn't just the nominal wages that went up. It was the real wages and their purchasing power that went up under Kennedy. Um, you know, so it was a it was an incredible economy that I think everyone benefited from when he was president um, all the way into you know, you'll see that economic growth until they're like maybe 66, 67, 65. Um, and a lot of times people will say, well, the economic growth in the 60s was because of the Vietnam War. But as you know, that war didn't really become big until middle of 1965, which is when they sent in the troops. I don't remember, it was like August 65 or something. I can't remember. But it was definitely not until middle of 65 that they send it, started sending combat troops to Vietnam. So you know, that war really got big in the late 60s. So a lot of this economic benefit was from Kennedy's policies. Like he lowered, he created the investment tax credit, which basically gave companies a tax credit if they purchased new equipment. Um, you know, he made sure he put pressure on the Federal Reserve to lower long-term interest rates to make it easier, you know, again, to invest. He lowered taxes across the board um, and particularly, uh, small businesses benefited the most from his tax cuts. Um, you know, so he did so much to spur the economy, to get it moving. And if there's a speech he gave uh, that's worth watching, I think it was like middle of 62. I don't know if you've seen it. In his Oval Office, he's got this chart where he's got all these graphs on his chart and he's pointing to it like a professor. He's like sitting there like a professor and he's pointing at these economic graphs and charts and saying, look what's happening to inflation. Look what's happening to unemployment. Look, look what's happening to GNP. And you don't see that today. You don't see like presidents speaking to the public, almost like they're professors trying to give him a, a, you know, a lesson in economics. And a lot of economists said JFK understood economics better than any other U.S. president. Um, like he really understood how the economy worked. You know, he really understood how to, um, I guess, spur the economy. And he was, I would say, almost obsessed with it. Like he was obsessed with the gold balances. He was obsessed with inflation. Um, so he put massive, massive focus on the economy. And I think people don't realize how in tune he was with that, how obsessed he was. Um, well, where did he experience the obvious kind of siding with certain political figures or elites getting 
a certain amount of cash and not being spread amongst the people when it comes to business. I mean, did he know about like certain oil figures and things of that sort that obviously were making large sums of money from their corporations and it was not going back to or being dispersed evenly? I mean, that's very he was very working class minded, which makes me wonder if he got that from earlier in his political life or if he came across that i mean it couldn't just been with his presidency that he was aware of all that he had to pick that up somewhere and i don't see that being taught in colleges that much yeah so that's a really good question um obviously no one can really know what motivated him but i think it probably stems from a lot of things one is his irish background you know so his grandparents or great-grandparents lived through the irish famine um you know, Ireland was colonized by Britain. And so they, so he had this like anti-colonialism and this, he had a real sympathy for people who were hungry. You know, when he went to, when he went to West Virginia to, um, when he was doing a primary there, you know, he toured over West, all over West Virginia and he saw how hungry people were. And so to the debate, he brought a can of powdered eggs and he like read off what the food that people get and he's like, this is not an adequate diet for anyone. Um, it's not enough food. It's not good enough quality food. It doesn't offer the nutrition that is needed. So his very first executive order, he doubled the um, value of the food distributed. So it went from like, uh, I think $13 per person to like $25 per person and, and doubled like the amount of protein they get. And he also doubled the amount of people receiving food. So I think it went up from I don't remember the number, maybe 3 million to 6 million people, but it, whatever it was, it doubled the amount of people receiving the food. Um, so he was, and I'm, that might go back, might go back to the Irish famine. I don't know. It might go back to, he was sick a lot. Like if you look at the, some of the photos of when he's younger, he looks almost anorexic and it wasn't because he wasn't eating. It was because, you know, he was ill with various ailments or whatever. Too. Yeah. Multiple times. So um, so I think he knew what it was like to be wasting away, I guess, physically, um, you know, and he had that anti-colonial background. And of course, he almost lost his life in World War II and his life was saved by indigenous islanders, which is maybe another reason why he um, sided with colonized populations, because they had saved his life and he wouldn't even be there if it wasn't for them, you know, saving him during World War II. So I think for a lot of reasons, maybe because he was sick, maybe because of his Irish background, maybe because he almost died in World War II, he seemed to have a lot of empathy for, I guess, the forgotten people in society, which you don't typically, and I think was genuine empathy. You know, Jackie said in her oral history that he had a huge heart, you know, he had a lot of empathy for people and he would get upset, like Eisenhower was saying something like, what? don't we bring all these Cuban exiles and use them for like $20 a month as slaves, basically. And she, Jackie just said that Jack was, you know, so hurt by those kinds of comments. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know where it came from, but he definitely had a lot of empathy for sort of the forgotten people in society. And some of it was, I think also he was a great um, student of history. So he studied history books all the time. And I think he, wanted to be remembered as someone who was a good president. I think he genuinely really wanted to do a good job as president. Like, I think he really, really, really cared about that. Probably more than most presidents um, is that he really wanted to, to be a good president, to do, to you know, and he always said the job of a president is to represent the people that don't have representation in Washington. So he said, you know, 14 or 15 million Americans have the resources to have their interests um, pursued by Washington or have their interests served by Washington. And he said the interest of the other, all the other Americans is the responsibility of the president of the United States, because his job is to basically protect the public interest against all the narrow private interests that operate in our society. Um, so yeah, he was just really idealistic. You know, he believed in democracy. He believed in decentralized power. You know, he believed in everyone having opportunity and being treated with fairness and with dignity. Um, and it's hard to know where that came from, because on the surface, it does seem kind of odd. You know, he's the son of a millionaire. He grew up ultra wealthy. So you think, like, how can this guy relate to all these people that are suffering? Doesn't he come from a different world? You know, so it is a question mark, I think, to some extent where that came from. But I think those are some of the experiences that may be led to that. Can I ask about, I don't know, you might know this or not, but um, about his relationship with uh, Harry Truman? I don't know too much about it, his relationship. I think Truman, 
if I remember correctly, during the campaign, spoke out against Kennedy and said he was too young to run for president. I might be mixing him up with someone else. I no, can't remember. You're right. But then they end up becoming friends. And I see all these videos now of them like like drinking and eating and having like a laugh over. I'm just like, to me, it just like, why would you befriend someone that would just basically try and deny you from being the president? But there was just this weird relationship that evolved. But that was one thing about Kennedy. And I don't think we've seen it since the president since was that he invited all types of people to sit down and have meetings with them. Like either if they're people from other countries, ambassadors, things of that sort. I do not see that. I didn't even see it after Kennedy. I don't think John, maybe Johnson was forced to. Nixon might have been forced to, but everyone's kind of had something planned for them. But Kennedy was going and having monthly meetings with these certain people from other countries. I'm not wrong in saying it. that's like a first time. I haven't seen that in a long time. Yeah. Yeah. No. And Jackie actually said that she didn't understand how Jack did it because all these people would be mean to him, like you said, Truman and whoever else and would like, you know, try to screw him over and whatever, but Jack would still be super nice to them. And she, Jackie was like, in her oral history, she's like, I just don't get it. She's like, if that were me, I couldn't do that. I would like give them the evil eye or whatever, <laughs> you know, if they had screwed me over. But what he said to her is like, you know, these are colleagues, like I have to work with them. If I hold grudges against them, if I don't, you know, try to cooperate with them, absolutely nothing will get done. If I want to get legislation through, if I want to get things accomplished, I have to work cordially with these people, whether or not they've screwed me over in the past or not. Um, and I know like when they were going down to flying down to Dallas, I think it was um, Senator Yarborough. I don't remember. Ja Jackie was had issue with somebody. She's like, oh, he's such a mean person or something. And she said, you know, the night before Jack was, you know, said very gently and nicely to her, you know, don't think those things. If you think those things you are going to act, you know, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you think someone else is, you know, mean-spirited or whatever, you're going to act a certain way towards them, which is then going to make them act mean-spirited. And he's like, you know, let's, you know, just be kind and be, be nice to everyone. And so that's just how he was. That was his personality that he would work with everyone, no matter how maybe mean they had been to him in the past, he would still be willing to work with them to try to get legislation through and try to get things done. And he also said that in order to make the best decisions, he has to have all the information. So he always wanted to get information from as many people as possible and as many different viewpoints as possible. So he would have people like work on stuff and offer him totally opposing perspectives and then give it to him. And then he would decide what he wanted to do. Um, so he was very, very open. I think more open than most um, leaders are because I think most people have an idea of what they believe. And they tend to gravitate towards um, people and articles and whatever that agree or reinforce their existing views, right? They want to listen to people who they know will support their viewpoint. But Kennedy was quite the opposite. He wanted to listen to everyone, including people who had very different viewpoints. Because again, I think this goes back to him really caring about being a good president. And he understood that to be a good president he needed to know as much information as possible and hear from as many people as possible. Otherwise, he was going to make the wrong decisions, because if you only have half the information, you're never going to make the right decision. Right. You're going to base it off the information you have. And that's what he said. He's like, I can only make decisions based off information I have. If I don't have the right information, I'm going to make the wrong decision. So he understood that and he really wanted every viewpoint out there to be exposed to every viewpoint. Did you look at any of his uh prior speeches before obviously the assassination like all the ones he did in dallas he did two in dallas if i'm not mistaken yeah then fort worth i think yeah they he did that one with the hat i think we talked about yeah, that last was, time was <laughs> he, so was he recepted well i mean besides the awkward hat thing of like trying to conform by putting on this giant hat but there was he recepted well in dallas i know there was a lot of kind of animosity of him going to dallas a lot of people like you're entering the snakes pit here um and he was kind of pushed into that but I'm just curious if he was receptive. I know there was one for trees and posters and things of that sort, but I mean, like when he was actually giving a speech and people got to see the substance of the things that he was saying, I think a lot of people would start changing their opinions or maybe some harsh attitude towards him. So I'm wondering if he was recept recepted well. I think he was, it seemed to me, I mean, it's hard to say, but based from the photo and video footage I've seen, he seemed to have, you know, be well recepted while he was there. And he won Texas in the 1960 election. You know, Texas always goes to the Republicans now, but Kennedy actually won Texas. He it was just funny. He lost California by a sliver. It was just like a tiny sliver. He lost California. 
um, and I think he would have won. He wanted to campaign the last couple of days in California, but his campaign had already had him scheduled in New York, which I think he was really annoyed with because he was like, I've already won New York. Why do I need to be in New York? I should go to California where it's tight. And he probably would have won California had he campaigned the last few days there, but he did win Texas. Um, so, you know, I think he probably would have got won Texas again in 64, but, but yeah, there was, you know, obviously not everyone is going to love the president. Um, so there was definitely, there were those wanted for treason posters and stuff, but, um, you know, cause he was viewed as soft on communism, you know, cause he was at that point, he was sending wheat to the Russians. Right. And so he was like, you're feeding the Russian soldiers that will come and attack us basically is what that wanted for treason sign. Sad com, com, communist scare out there painting everything with a communist brush. Um, I got to ask about the relationship between RFK and JFK. Uh, where did you focus with that? Like a lot of the stuff I've looked at, have, they've all been court proceedings. Mostly there's an iconic photo. It's I want to get it put up on the wall back here, but it's one person in the middle and it's a JFK on the right and RFK on the left. And they're just staring at this guy. I was like, that's like a thing you would shoot for a photo shoot. So I'm curious where you looked at when it came to RFK and JFK's relationship. Um, you know, I, to me, it seemed like a really, really tight and close relationship where they almost like communicated. Um, and I'll, people said they would communicate like with their eyes and facial expressions, so they were always seemed to be on the same wavelength. Now they were different people, which I think um, a lot of people assume they were like the same, but they had different personalities. I think RFK was more emotional and reacted more on emotion, whereas JFK was really logical and really um, practical. And um, so they were kind of, you know, they they were different people to some extent with different personalities, but they were, they, um, they fit each other very well, if that kind of makes sense. They were very complementary to each other. Um, and I do think they had a really close bond. Like, I do think RFK is probably the only person in his JFK's administration that he could like 100% trust, you know, that he would, he knew obviously his brother would never do anything to intentionally harm him or screw him over. Um, he knew he could trust his brother that, it, you know, if he told something to his brother, it wasn't going to then be told to someone else. Um, and he only gave, like, he had a back door in his office and only Lyndon Johnson and Bobby Kennedy had the right to use that door. Everyone else had to go through his secretary to get into his office. Um, so yeah, there was a really close and tight bond. And I think that was perhaps intimidating to others and maybe frustrating as well, because Bobby was only in his mid thirties. He was really young and he looked younger. He looked like a baby, you know, cause he had that like, that, like baby face. So I think that probably was a little agitating to some people because they're like, why does this kid brother have so much power and authority, especially to Hoover, right? Because Hoover always had access directly to the president. And now he has to, technically the FBI is supposed to report through the attorney general. And that's what JFK made Hoover do, made him report through Bobby, which I think Hoover absolutely hated that this like kid now, he has to report to this kid now and he has no access to the president directly. Um, so I think a lot of people were kind of put off that basically JFK gave his kid brother so much power. Um, cause even when he was joking, when he was came time to announce that Bobby was going to be attorney general, JFK joked that he was going to go out at midnight, look at both sides of the street and just whisper it's Bobby, you know? So he kind of knew that he was going to get a lot of flack for that. But in JFK's defense, I think Bobby was an incredible attorney general. And I think a lot of people see him as one of the best attorney generals in American history today. So he was obviously a good choice for that position. Um, and also, I think JFK needed someone he trusted. Like, it's just, it's really important. You know, I know nepotism is a bad thing, but at the same time, if you're president of the United States, you need people around you that you can trust 100%. And sometimes that ability to trust someone is so much more important than whether they're technically on paper the most qualified person for the position or not. Because he could have gotten someone who was, you know, technically more qualified to be attorney general, but if he didn't have 100% trust in that person, it was not going to be an effective relationship and that was not going to be an effective attorney general. So I think JFK understood that, you know, it wasn't so much about nepotism as it was about trust. Um, and he obviously had a lot of faith in Bobby's abilities to get the job done. And we see, you know, how good an attorney general he was in retrospect. So I think JFK absolutely made the right decision. Um, you know, when he, when he gave him that position. 
How much do you think was based on JFK's age that might have denied him some possibilities or opportunities? For JFK or for Bobby? JFK. When he was president, I mean, how many people might have just not really taken anything he said or listened, even bothered to listen to JFK because of the fact that he was just too young? We talked about Truman mentioning his age in the, earlier. I just mean there had to be plenty of other people that might have said something about that. He was a young president. Yeah, no, I think so. I know when Abe Feinberg, um, who was a big financier of the Democratic Party, so in early 1961, he set up a meeting in New York for JFK to meet David Ben-Gurion. And Feinberg said that Ben-Gurion was like insulted that he has to meet with this little kid, basically, and that this little kid has like any kind of power to like, you know, he he just found that insulting that he's still like deal with this kid, basically. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people felt that way. A lot of older, perhaps politicians maybe had that same feeling of like, why is this 40 year old who's pretty young looking, you know what I mean? Like, and his kid brother, why are they like running the town? Why are they making all these decisions? And I'm sure a lot of the older, like military generals and stuff were probably very frustrated with it. Cause they think like, you know, this guy's got no experience. He doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, he's, yeah. And, you know, and then CIA, Alan Dulles said, you know, that little Kennedy, he thought he was a god. And, you know, and I think what Kennedy thought was that he was president. Right. That's what Alan Dulles meant, meant by that comment. Like Kennedy was actually making his own decisions. And I think they were thinking, who's this kid who thinks he actually has power? Right. Because in the world of Alan Dulles, the powers in Wall Street, the powers in the oligarchy, the powers in the military and the CIA and the president is just window dressing. Right. So, but Kennedy thought, no, I'm actually president, you know, I actually have power and I'm going to make decisions. And so I think that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, not just his age, but the fact that he was actually, um, that he actually believed he had power and that he was actually trying to use that power, you know. He, he didn't fit the boys club that was the politics for the longest time and still remains some of the politics. Yeah, correct. No, he definitely did not. You know, he definitely didn't. He didn't really have a lot of friends in the, I guess, quote unquote, establishment. You know, he was more friends with like academics and people like that. Um, so, yeah, he was definitely very different, I think, from a lot of our presidents. Um, his father had a lot of money, which is, I think, was made it possible for him to campaign and to win. Um, otherwise, I don't think he would have had a shot in hell of winning um, if he didn't have a lot of his own money to help campaign. Do you think the Cold War boosted some of Kennedy's popularity because of the policies and things that he was moving forward? Like, do you think that was like if Nixon would have won and we would have got Kennedy later, do you think he would have been more successful later? Or do you think that was a good time for someone like JFK to come into the picture? Um, I don't know. I think um, I think he would have been a great president no matter when he was president, because he was what made him a great president is he knew he understood who he was working for with which was America as a whole, not just oligarchs. And he was very committed to doing a good job. And it's the combination of those two things that made him such a great president, which is why I think he would have been a great president in any era or any time, because he would have still had those two qualities. You know, they would have applied to maybe different circumstances, different external circumstances, but he would have still maintained those two qualities. And those are really the two things in essence that made him such a great president, in my opinion. What's his interest with Indonesia? Obviously, he was trying to give uh, Indonesia was it independence. I'm very the Indonesia stuff. That's a lot of people can't even point to that on a map. So the fact I've only talked about that a few times. Yeah. So Greg Polgrain is probably an excellent person to interview on He's that been topic. On twice. Yeah. Yeah. So he um, so there was an island in the Indonesian islands called West New Guinea. And basically, um, it was up for debate as to who was going to have control over this island. So Dag Hammarskjöld, who was the UN Secretary General, wanted to um, have that island controlled by the indigenous people. So he um, worked with the UN to try to basically establish a local government there with the local indigenous people controlling that island. So that island was not going to be the island at the moment was controlled by the Dutch and the Indonesians wanted the island because it was in the Indonesian island area. And um, Hammerskjöld was trying to make the island neither Dutch nor Indonesian. So basically get rid of Dutch control, but have it controlled by the people, indigenous people on the island. And Kennedy supported Hammerskjöld in that. 
And then Hammerskald, as you know, died in a plane crash in the Congo. And what happened after that then is obviously what Hammerskald was trying to do about making it independent just kind of went out the window. And so what Kennedy did after that is he um, sent Bobby over to Indonesia and then sent him over to uh, negotiate with the Dutch. He wanted to basically um, give the island to Indonesia for at least a few years and then eventually have a plebiscite to let the local people vote on whether who's going to run the island, whether they want to run it themselves or whether they want to stay as part of Indonesia. And ultimately, he convinced the Dutch to hand over the island to Indonesia and Indonesia and Sukarno was like Sukarno, who was the leader of Indonesia, were just ecstatic over this, right? Because this is what they wanted. They wanted this island. Now, what makes it super complicated is there was actually a massive, massive gold mine on the island that nobody knew about. Not the Dutch, not the Indonesians, not Kennedy. Alan Dulles knew about it. Yes, Alan Dulles knew about it. The Rockefellers knew about it. It was like their... Um, Somebody, I think he was on an expedition for one of their companies, discovered this gold mine. And it was, I guess, like the richest gold mine in the world. Um, so this was massive, massive gold mine there that nobody knew about. And so the CIA itself was annoyed with Kennedy for handing the island over to the Indonesians because they felt that this gave Sukarno a victory. And they were worried Sukarno was going to become communist and they wanted to weaken Sukarno's regime. So they were really annoyed with JFK for handing this island over to the Indonesians. And then after he handed it over to the Indonesians, he signed off on giving them a lot of aid, economic aid, you know, um, even military aid to basically build up, you know, their um, their people and their society. But Alan Dulles, uh, Greg Polgrain argues, was actually happy that JFK handed over the island to the Indonesians because he knew it would be much easier to get the gold from the Indonesians than the Dutch. So if the Dutch found out about the gold, he figured it would be hard to get it. But if the Indonesians controlled the island, then all that the CIA needed to do was put a puppet regime in Indonesia, and then Dulles would get control of that gold, and the Rockefellers or whatever would get control of that gold. So after, so Kennedy was very supportive of Sukarno. Sukarno wanted Kennedy to make a visit, um, and there was talk of him making a visit in maybe '64. I think the. Last thing I I see that Kennedy had a meeting in November 19th. He said he wanted to go in 65 and not 64. Um, but I know Greg Polgrain said in his book that it was confirmed, I think, after that meeting that he would go in 64. So I'm a little in, I'm not clear as to when he was going to go, but he was definitely going to go at some point to Indonesia. And Sukarno really wanted him to come. And basically, um, that would have kind of solidified in the public eye. Kennedy's support of the non-aligned movement. So the thing, the big thing that was happening at that, that time was the non-aligned movement. So all these recently decolonized states basically wanted to stay not aligned with East or West. They just wanted to be independent states. They don't want anything to do with choosing the Soviet side or choosing the American side. And Kennedy was fine with that. He was very supportive of the non-aligned movement. He was very supportive of non-aligned states. He didn't care if they sided with the US as long as they didn't side with the Soviets. They did their own thing if they were nationalists. He was good with that. And that kind of goes back to his support of decentralized power because you don't necessarily want everyone agreeing with the U.S. either because that's not good for the average American either because then you're living under an empire. And, you know, Kennedy understood that it's not good for the average American to live under an empire. You want to live in a democracy. So he was very supportive of the non-aligned movement. And so, yeah, so the plan was for Kennedy to go out there at some point to visit, to continue to give aid to Indonesia, and then Sukarno in early November, I think, went to came to the U.S. ambassador and said that he thinks the CIA is going to try to overthrow him. He doesn't think Kennedy knows anything about it, but he's worried about it. And of course, a few weeks later, JFK passed away. And then in 65, um, there was a coup in Indonesia where they replaced Sukarno with General Suharto, who then remained in power in Indonesia for the next 30 years. And something like half a million to a million peasants, PKI, Communist Party of Indonesia. Although Sukarno said like 90% of them are nationalists. Only like 10% of them are true communists, even though we viewed it as the Communist Party. Sukarno said they're not communists, they're just nationalists, which I think JFK agreed with. They were nationalists, not communists. Um, anyway, they got slaughtered in this coup. Um, it's a horrific coup. Um, and yes, yeah, Suharto took power. He opened up Indonesia to tons of foreign investment, which made, you know, the CIA happy. Dulles got access to the gold. And it's just it's such a like messy story and sad story. And but yeah, and it is a, a not um, 
you know, everybody, when they talk about JFK in the history books, they talk about Cuba, Vietnam, civil rights. And that's probably about it that you see about Kennedy in the history books um, in like the mainstream, you know, school studies or whatever. I didn't but even know so about Indonesia until I had Greg Polgrain on and then he kind of opened me up to it. There's so much more to his presidency that's not um, talked about much. And I think Indonesia is one of those um, fascinating stories um, where you kind of get an idea of you never know why people are making certain decisions because you kind of see here, Alan Dulles has his own motives. He's trying to get the gold. Nobody else knows about this. So he's like, you just don't know why people are making decisions they're making. You know, you don't know why he's happy that the Indonesians have this island now. You know what I mean? You don't know why they want to overthrow Sukarno. Like, so just what the, what society knows and what people's actual motives are is very difficult to decipher at that moment. Even historically, it's difficult to decipher, but um, yeah, it's just kind of, it, it, it makes you really think about what motivates people to make decisions. And this goes back to why Kennedy was such a good president. He was making decisions to benefit the American people as a whole and to benefit, you know, the common man around the world as a whole. That was what was driving Kennedy's decisions. What was driving Dulles's decisions was access to this gold mine, right? So it's just fascinating what motivates people in power and positions of power to do the things they do. How much did you have to learn about just the context of the Cold War to really understand maybe the climate for Kennedy when he was president? Yeah, I think that's important to understand the climate he was in because you have to understand the political pressures a person is under. So if, for example, someone was running for president in 2020 when there was all this COVID hysteria, there's only certain things that he can maybe publicly say without having his um, run for the presidency destroyed. Even if maybe he believes a certain thing, he can't really publicly say it because there's so much media pressure and so much propaganda out there that he's up against that he has to cater to it to an extent if he has any realistic chance of um, of functioning really in any kind of public role. So that was kind of the pressure that was on Kennedy. He couldn't, and he was trying to break away from that. You know, he was trying to break away from that. He was supporting the non-aligned movement. He was, um, you know, he did give his American University peace speech. He was trying to sell wheat to the Soviets. You know, he did sign the nuclear test ban treaty. So he was trying to step away from that, but it's hard when that culture is there and when, when everyone is scared of the communists, when um, like you can't deny that fear, even if that fear is overblown, you can't deny that people have that fear. So just like with COVID, like. All right. I won't get into that, but. That's YouTube censorship right okay, there. Okay, sorry. Yeah, okay. but it's, you have to respond to you know, those fears are real, even if they're exaggerated, so, sort of, you know what I mean? Like the fear of communism was real, even if maybe um, it was exaggerated. They weren't never going to like come and blow up the U.S. Although they argue, you can argue with the Cuban Missile Crisis that maybe that fear. To be honest, I think our own domestic population back then did more damage to itself than it did a communist did. Yeah, it's... um. I think, yeah, he had you, any president has to work in the culture that they live in, right? In the propaganda that they live in, in the media that they live in. So it, you, we have to recognize those pressures on Kennedy when we look at his decisions and look at um, what he did. And, you know, and sometimes you have to give lip service to certain things because you just, you just have to if you, and if you don't want to be attacked and whatnot. And that's not to say that he he certainly did not like communism. He did not agree with that system of government. You know, so he was genuine when he criticized communism. That wasn't fake or insincere. That was very genuine. But it's one thing to disagree. You know, like he said in his American University peace speech, it's one thing to disagree about economic systems and systems of government. And it's another thing to just demonize a whole group of people you know he said no government or no social system is so evil that his people should be seen as lacking in virtue you know so we can't we can't say that you know the russian people lack virtue because we don't like their system of governments or we don't like their economic system or whatnot um 
how was the media receptive to Kennedy? I mean, did he do was he open to doing press conferences and things of that sort being on news? I saw interviews with him like with Walter Cronkite or a journalist that were just interviewing him. I'm like, how many presidents go out of their way now to want to do an interview with any news outlets? Yeah, it's kind of funny. Um, he made this comment where he said everything the press writes about my presidency is inaccurate or is not right. And he said that it makes me wonder whether everything I know about history is wrong, because if they can't get it right as it's happening, how the hell are they going to get it right 50 years from now? Because people are going to look back at what the press wrote and what they're writing is wrong, right? And so I wonder if that played a part in him deciding to uh, audio tape some of the meetings and phone conversations, because he realized he needed a record of what was happening because it wasn't record being recorded correctly by the press. Um, and so that's why I think it's really important when you study Kennedy to, you know, listen to those phone conversations, listen to those meetings, you know, read the letters, read the memos, try to get as much as you can from the primary sources rather than the secondary sources, because Kennedy himself did not think the secondary sources were accurate, um, you know, during that time. So they're probably even less accurate 60 years, you know, in retrospect. So, you know, try to look at primary sources as, as much as you can, not just with Kennedy, but with anything. But I would say that he did his best to be open to the press. Like you said, he was the first one to do live videotape press conferences. So every couple of weeks, sometimes more often, sometimes weekly, sometimes less often, but um, I think he had something like 64 or 67 press conferences, live television press conferences during his presidency. And you can really see how sharp he was, how on his feet he was, you know, and if he didn't know something, a lot of times he would say, you know, we're still looking into that. We haven't made a decision and we still need to do more analysis, et cetera. So, you know, he was always very open about that if if he couldn't give an answer. Um, but yeah, those, if you listen to those press conferences, you you just see how sharp he was, how on top of everything he was, how much he understood about what was going on in his administration. And I just think of like Joe Biden. I'm like, no way in hell could this dude do a live press conference and answer all these like tough questions, you know, like the guy can't do anything without reading a monitor. So it's, it really shows you like um, just how open he was with the American public, you know, and he did do interviews, like you said, with Walter Cronkite and with um, other people. And like I mentioned earlier, when he was talking about the economy, he was like a professor giving class, like pointing at charts and graphs. And this was like live for the American people. You know, you don't see that today. I don't see Joe Biden going on there and pointing to a bunch of graphs and explaining to the public how things work. Yeah, we don't have a lot of that personal personability. I think Kennedy had when it comes to being a president. I mean, despite him being being, I guess, in their eyes, too young. I mean, we have plenty of people now that are way too old that probably shouldn't be. <laughs> yes, it's the opposite problem. I'm curious how much of your source information came from interviews, conferences, recordings based on documentation, or were you enlightened more from maybe Jackie Kennedy's oral history? Um, both, because I consider Jackie Kennedy's oral history to be a primary source as well, because she was there, obviously. Um, so I think she just shed light or reaffirmed things, I guess you could say, that you had read in the source material. So for example, there's a lot of source material that, um, you know, JFK wanted to withdraw the advisors, that he refused to send combat troops to Vietnam. But then when you hear Jackie say that, you know, her husband told her in private many times that the political was so much more important than the military, that just reaffirms all those other things you were reading. And again, she said this in early 64. So it wasn't like this was said in the 1970s where she didn't want her husband blamed for the Vietnam War. This was long before, you know, that escalation didn't happen until middle of 65. So this was long before that, you know. So if he's talking, having private conversations with his wife, you know, those are his genuine feelings, um, how he feels about the situation. So I think she just reaffirmed what the other source material um, showed and same with the economy, you know, how she talked about how all these businessmen didn't like him and were giving him a hard time. That again, reaffirms what we see Kennedy's policies were. Um, so I think what she said was very consistent with what you see in the other source material. You know, if we talk about the history books, not really talking so much about JFK at all, we still have these over 60 years later, a lot of people still care about the man. So obviously there's something that the history books or these academics are missing. 
Yeah, and I think the reason they don't talk about him is if you start talking about what we lost when he died, then that will um, pique interest in his assassination again, right? They don't, I think they, they don't want to talk about the assassination. And so they can't really talk about how much was lost when he died and how many policies changed because that introduces motive. And then you suddenly get people interested in the assassination. So they'd rather kind of just gloss over it all and not talk about it, if that makes sense. I think it's just a taboo topic. Well, all to, all roads lead to Dallas. All roads lead to Dallas. To talk about the Vietnam War, if you actually know where, like, kind of like the JFK side of things, you don't really hear about any presidents really being involved besides Johnson. Um, at least when I was taught it in school, there really wasn't a lot of talk about JFK when it came to Vietnam War. It was mostly Johnson, Vietnam War, and the issues going on in Vietnam. But if you talk about Vietnam War, if you talk about Cuba, if you talk about the mob, if you talk about any of this type of stuff, it all leads back to JFK. And then that obviously is going to lead you into the assassination. But there's a whole chunk of, I, I mean, I would consider important history, even the Khrushchev letters. Um, I would toss that in there and at least in the form or whatever they do when it comes to teaching these kids anything about history at all, especially related to JFK. But I got a crappy Zapruder film that was showed, and that was it. It's JFK. I'm like, thanks. Thanks, man. Yeah, because yeah, when you – the thing is when you realize how much was lost, that's when you care. So it's one thing to write about the assassination w without realizing what was lost because then, then it's like a puzzle that you're looking at, but you're not – but when you realize that – okay, our government doesn't work for the people. It works for the oligarchs. You know, when you realize how much corruption there is in government, when you realize that, you know, we had someone who stood up to industry, we had someone who wasn't just going to go into every war, you know, that we had someone who stood up to power, who served the people, then you realize, okay, well, this is what it could be like. You know, why isn't every president like this? Why isn't like every leader like this? And so I think that's part of the reason they don't want to talk about Kennedy's policies and all that was lost and even how, you know, how good the economy was. Cause then it's like, well, why is our economy so crappy now? Why is inflation so high now? You know, why can't someone do what Kennedy did and to push a, you know, push a robust for a robust econ economy to really fight for no inflation. Like when he went to battle with the steel industry over inflation, like you're not going to see a president do that today. You know what I mean? So I think they just don't want to make people realize how good it can be because you're so used to the, these bad presidents. You're so used to the status quo. You're so used to the endless wars. You're so used to like government serving corporate um, power, government serving Wall Street that you don't think that there could be something else. And so I think that's another part of the reason that Kennedy's not really talked about, because then that'll make people realize how much better it could be. There's uh, it's it's called when the blind lead the blind is what's going on right now, to be honest with you. I think with JFK, I just think it's interesting that I wonder how many people's political ideas or beliefs or even people that were going to be politicians that were going to be in major realms of power ended up changing some of their perspective or some of the way that they were thinking about politics because of JFK. I consider him a turning point in the country. Just with the mindset, you slowly start to see the shift. I think you can start looking at the counterculture movements. Obviously, I know that was for the Vietnam War and everything, but there's a lot of different dissent that starts happening within the culture and political people start changing their tunes on certain things. Where I start going, that had to be from Kennedy because it's all you see that transition start to happen. You, literally, you can see the country going completely in one direction. Then JFK comes in, then he does his presidency, and then you just see it shift in a little bit of a different direction. It's not on the same track 100%. It's a little bit skewed, and that's where we start to go in a whole different area. Yeah, and you wonder if some of that counterculture was in response to Kennedy, you know, because if you see our president being assassinated, and then you see all the deaths in Vietnam, then you kind of start to become disillusioned with your government. And so you do start to develop like a counterculture there, like a hippie culture or whatever. Um, and you wonder if some of that was bred partly because of that assassination, because trust in government was close to 80 percent when Kennedy was president. Trust in government today is 24 percent. And it plummeted after Kennedy's assassination. So by the late 1970s, trust in government was at 25 percent. So we went from like, I think it was like 77 percent to 25 percent in like 15 years. So it's just you know, plummeted down. And a lot of that, it started with the Warren report. That's when trust in government started to go down drastically. And so now we live in a society where 75% of people don't trust their government. 
where we used to live in a society where 75% of people did trust their government. And a lot of that goes back to the openness to JFK that you mentioned earlier, him having open live press conferences where, you know, he could be grilled by reporters and, you know, give honest answers to the public where he would go and, you know, he would go on TV and give a lot of speeches directly, live speeches directly to the public. So there was a level of communication there and a level, and he would admit, like you said, at the Bay of Pigs that he was wrong. So when he, he messed up, he would, he would say, you know what, I messed up, I'm wrong, it's my fault. So there was a great degree of trust there. You know, people trusted him, they trusted his government. Um, and now there's almost no trust in government. And that breeds a whole different culture because people are disillusioned. Um, they don't want anything to do with the government. So yeah, it is, it's a very different culture, I think. Um, 24% still a little bit high. Yeah. Bump it down it's, a little bit. Yeah, I know. And I don't know who those 24% are. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's definitely a different different cult. Although people still tr- tend to trust the media a lot, which is kind of surprising. Maybe not that many, but it seems like people still fall for all the narratives pushed by the media on every topic, like uh, under the sun. It just seems to be, you know one narrative after another, it still seems like the vast majority kind of fall for it, which is kind of kind of weird. Did your perspective on government change looking more at Kennedy's and writing your book and everything about Kennedy? Did you get like I'm, I was not anti I mean, I was kind of anti-government in the beginning, but I think the Kennedy stuff really just confirmed it for me that I just do not like. I mean, I learned about the church committee. I learned about so much where I was like, yeah, I don't trust a single thing. I'm always going to be skeptical whenever they say something. Yeah, no, it opened my eyes massively. Like before I started uh, studying Kennedy, I, I knew there was a CIA, but I, I had no, and I knew they had something to do with intelligence. And so I thought, okay, they gather intelligence. I had no idea that they actually did operations or like what their power was. You know, I was totally clueless. I actually thought the president had power and, you know, and that we actually voted and this was an actual democracy. And, you know, I didn't realize how much corruption there is and how many different institutions there are, like how much power intelligence has, how much power the military has, how much, um, you know, politicians are driven by corporate money or like by, you know, wealth and power. And so I had no idea how, um, how corrupt it all was and how many different power sectors there were and that the president isn't necessarily the biggest power sector, you know, because, you know, people can work on the CAA for 20 years doing God knows what, you know, behind the president's back who have a lot of power that's completely obscured to the American public. Like we have no idea what they do. Well, there's I no accountability. Don't. There's no transparency. It's just these unelected people that have massive power. Right. And and it's not just the CIA or the military, the State Department, all these massive agencies you have now where you have people employed for long periods of time. And then you have this guy come in for four or eight years and how's he supposed to take control over all that and like, um, you know, make any. We have 32 government agencies, I'm pretty sure. And I can only name you probably six or seven. And I could not tell you what they all do and how they operate. The biggest mind blowing thing because of the Kennedy stuff for me, if you hear about Operation Mockingbird, which was the media asset. Yeah, I actually looked into the history of like Hollywood and found out that the DOD has been influencing scripts since like the 20s. Hoover did it with G-Men. He he was so worried about his FBI's appearance on screen that they made this rule. And it's so crazy. But it's um, the bad guys can shoot as much as they want, but they have to miss. And the FBI, they just want to have to fire a couple of shots. That's why whenever you watch a film and like usually the FBI or somebody comes on screen, you think like the badasses are here. And it's all that influencing small little adjustments like lone survival. The interview was funded partially by the CIA when they got done filming that. I don't know if you ever seen the interview before. No, uh, I've heard of it. Yeah, it's Seth Rogen and James Franco comedy about assassinating Kim Jong Un. When they got done with that movie, they put it on little thumb drives and used these balloons and tried to fly it over into North Korea so people would grab it and put it in their computer and see that, like, obviously their leader wasn't. And I'm like, why is our government doing this? This doesn't make sense. And I guess, I mean, maybe it's every government kind of has a gun to each other's head, but I just feel like it shouldn't have to be like this. And that's the one thing where you see that train of thinking is with Kennedy. It doesn't have to be like how we're doing this. And that's what I really, really like. Yeah, no, me too. I mean, it definitely opened my eyes massively, which is why I felt I had to write about it. Cause I just, 
it was like the world I was living in. And then there was this whole completely different world that I didn't know anything about. Right. And so it was a drastic eye opener, a massive eye opener. And, you know, so I felt like it opened my eyes so much that I felt like I had to put it on paper and write it and share it. Um, yeah. So I, yeah, I think he's an incredible person to learn a lot from. Well, Monica, where can people find your book? Uh, they can get it on Amazon, um, Thrift Books, Barnes and Noble, and it's available in uh, paperback, hardback, ebook, and audio as well. I self-recorded the audio. I saw that. I was like, thank you, because I can't listen. So, some of the times they get these narrators that do it, and I was like, oh, man, I can't handle this person's <laughs> voice. But I'm glad you did that. Thank you. Well, Monica, I'm going to link all your links in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you again. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for our next episode.